Today's guest is one of my favorite self-defense coaches to talk with. She's been on the show a couple times already, and I prevailed upon her to come back and do a show that focuses right on the area where she has an incredible amount of experience and expertise. So it is a really fun conversation and some pretty thought-provoking conversation and very useful tips and tools and strategies. So without any further delay, let's dive in to the return of Beverly Baker on the podcast. Here we go. Welcome to the Born to Be a Badass podcast, the show about the intersection of women's empowerment, embodiment, and self-defense, and what women need to know and do to enhance their physical, mental, and emotional safety. Here's your host, fourth-degree black belt and self-protection expert, Cynthia Jalakor-Rude. Welcome to the Born to Be a Badass podcast. I'm your host, Cynthia Jolicoeur Rude. Today, I am totally stoked to bring back on the show a woman who has been a guest before. She has been on several roundtable discussions and also done another solo interview. And I am excited to have her back on the show because I have a ton of questions about an area of self defense where she has some great experience and insights. And that is urban survival skills, urban self-defense. So even though I bugged out of Silicon Valley permanently a couple years ago, I know a lot of our listeners do live in urban environments and many, of course, travel to different cities all around the world. So the topic of how to stay safe in that kind of an environment is super important. Beverly Baker is an amazing badass woman who is a martial artist and a self-defense coach. She is the founder of the Metropolitan Finishing School, which is not the place to go if you are looking to learn how to serve tea correctly. It is where you want to go if you want to learn how to keep yourself safe in urban environments. Welcome to the show, Beverly. Hi, Cynthia. Thank you so much for having me. I love our conversations. Thanks for having me back. (laughs) I'm so excited. You're actually my first repeat solo guest. I'm honored. <laughs> I'm honored. Thank you. To talk to you, and you have such great things to say that it was kind of a no-brainer, especially because I was thinking about people being stuck at home and being in urban environments that are very different right now from what they are used to. So I thought, oh my gosh, I need to get Beverly back on so we can have another conversation. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, you know, just where we are right now with the shutdown and with people staying at home or not staying at home or you just, everything's different, right? So I'm definitely adding to my, you know, repertoire and, and, and just adding new observations. And, and it's, it's as a sociology major in undergrad, there was things we could never, we always said, oh, you can't do those experiments that, that would never pass ethics boards. Well, it's like, well, we're getting these experiments now. So I'm, I'm watching with much curiosity with, with everything we're seeing unfold. Yeah, absolutely. And how is it I didn't know that you were a sociology undergrad? Because I got my degree in sociology and anthropology after doing two years of physics. So no wonder we have so much to talk about. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I undergrad in sociology. And it was a research it was University of Texas at Austin. So we did, um, it was a research based school. So we did a lot of quantitative analysis and research methods. And it was such a rich experience. And then I went on to get my MBA, which really kind of put a lot of that into practice in terms of analysis and things like that. So as, as 
toxic and challenging as this time can be, it's, I, I, I kind of stay positive with what can I learn here? What can I observe? What, you know, again, if we could never do these studies in a laboratory, you know, what can we learn about people? And so that's kind of how, how it came to be. Asphalt anthropology is my signature class and it's based on, you know, people moving through cities and how we, how we do that. So it's just adding more to the, adding more layers for sure. Yeah, that's cool. Well, in the first interview that we did, I asked you what book you were reading. And so I want to ask you what you're reading now. Oh, well, you, I just finished literally yesterday a book called Feminist City, which, oh my goodness, you must read this book. You will love this book. It's written by a woman who is a professor and she's, I didn't know this was a field, but a feminist geographer. And so it's exactly all the things that, you know, I talk about and we're going to talk about today in terms of how cities are designed and made up and how as women, we move through them. What are some things that we can do to make improvements? Um, so I just finished that. And then right next to that, I'll, I'll probably be absorbing that one for a few days, but another book called Widen the Window, which is about dealing with trauma and, and building resilience in, in challenging times. So both books, I think, are very timely for what, what's going on in the world right now. Wow, they sound absolutely fascinating. I don't really have room on my, on my stack of books that are <laughs> put them on there because great. I hear you. I, I, I know I, it's like, you got to add stuff to your list, but I, one thing, I don't know if I've shared this with you for 2020, I made a goal for myself of reading only books related to self-defense that are by women. And I did that because I wanted to really kind of shake up my perspective. And so because there's so few books that are written by women about specifically self-defense, I'm reading things that are more peripheral. And I love it because it's making me have a much more, I think, rounded approach. So for example, the feminist city book I just finished, it's about, you know, cities themselves and how women move through them. And then the widen the window, the book I'm getting ready to start. I work with a lot of folks who have experienced trauma. So, um, and these are both written by women. So it's, it's, it's been quite a self-induced education that is really challenging a lot of my own per- beliefs, and I think really what we hold as tried and true beliefs in the self-defense industry, um, where a lot of these voices are not necessarily predominant. Right. Oh, wow. Well, okay. So I'm going to uh, offline get that list from you because I love reading those kinds of things. And I put every book that I find that is really valuable and has a lot of great insight for women on my resource page on my website so that they're easy to find. And oh, great. I will, I will come contact you after we're done with the show and ask you for that list so that I can read them and then I can put them on my uh, website so other women can find them too. Yeah. Happy to share that. Cool. Well, and of course you have a book on the way and I have, I can't even tell you how many bouncing around in my head that are waiting <laughs> going, but uh, the the population of books about self-defense written by women is definitely going to be growing. I am so happy to hear that. Yeah, I have one on, on the way and I know of others that are working on it. And, and it, it's really is time that we hear, I mean, these voices have always been there, but we, we haven't spotlighted them or elevated them. And, and, and it's time to, to change that for sure. It is indeed. Well, I have a couple more questions and then we're going to dive into the really nitty gritty stuff. Yeah, let's do it. So what 
changes in your self-care practices have you made since the whole COVID lockdown hit? Oh, that is a great question. Definitely, I've slowed down my life, which probably could have, should have, would have happened anyway, or should have happened anyway. With my day job, I, I, um, I'm the CEO of an organization. We, we've been busier than ever. And so I was sharing with someone recently, it dawned on me, it's like, I'm busier than ever. And yet I don't have the outlet of going to the gym and punching things or throwing my judo partners to the ground or vice versa. And so I've got all like three times the stress and less and way less of the outlet. So um, it's uh, the self-care has been really kind of pausing. I'm still working out doing my own things on my own and my husband's holding mitts for me, which is a lot of fun. So he's learning a lot, but it's really like the whole adage, work hard, play hard. I'm really having to scale back on that because there's just not the, the, the workout equivalent that I can get. Um, Brian, my husband will not let me throw him to the ground. So <laughs> until he learns a good judo fall, <laughs> I, I need other substitutes. <laughs> Yeah, I I think that's pretty common. And one thing that I've noticed is, yeah, I, I don't know who these people are that are sitting at home watching Netflix, because I like you am like 10 times as busy as I was previously. And uh, my, my workouts and fitness have definitely been the thing that have paid the price. And of course, part of that was the arrival of the dozen puppies in March, like right when the whole shutdown happened. Yeah, uh, that <laughs> certainly turned life upside down. But I've been trying since it's like, well, I, I don't have the energy often during the day to go and do something really vigorous. Yeah. I have been trying to pay more attention to sort of the softer end of self-care and make sure that I am just sitting in silence for five minutes or yeah. taking a bath at the end of the day has become like a real treat because usually that it takes too long, right? But it's, oh, but I can just, even if it's only 10 minutes you know, I need that. And I've also been trying to do more just kind of mobility type stuff because I'm finding without those intense movement workouts that my body is kind of suffering because I'm not moving enough. So I'm trying yeah. more mobility and just gentle movement to keep, keep things working basically. I hear you. Yeah, absolutely. Cause I'm, I'm like you're, you, I'm like more in front of my computer than ever. And so uh, mobility, some yoga is, is definitely, I'm with you. It's not my favorite, but I, I miss, I miss beating on my training partners. <laughs> I do too. And <laughs> when my husband is around, we have, that's kind of how we connected was through martial arts. We, we trained together. Yeah a while and he's not always up here and and we keep saying where well, we're going to train together just you know 10 15 minutes just do some stuff and and get that connection back and somehow it never seems to happen because when he comes up he's got a to-do list of things oh. along and uh, you know I'm usually really busy and and that's not happening either so it it's a great intention but it's one that we haven't really taken action on and I think we both really miss it yeah yeah, it's fun to have a partner that you can do that kind of stuff with. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm lucky Brian Brian has been stepping up and it, it's been a lot of fun. And it's it's giving me my chance to kind of 
you know, keep teaching in a way, you know, it's not my usual audience. And, and I, I have had the experience where it's terrible to teach your partner. <laughs> so, you know, it's like, it, it, it's a different world, but it's, it's kind of helping me, you know, learn, learn some things for sure. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. Well, what are some of the most surprising changes about LA and Hollywood that you've noticed since the lockdown? Surprising. Um, Oh gosh, I, I I don't know how to answer that with surprising about specifically LA. I mean, when the lockdown first hit, like it was quiet. It was a ghost town, right? And it was it was a surreal experience. Um, got a lot of just wild photographs of you know day before there's you know thousand people standing on the street corner, and then the next day crickets. And so I guess one thing that surprised me about myself is how much I miss that energy. I miss actually hearing the, the helicopters go overhead. I miss the drama of the city. And it's one thing it, I, I've been able to notice more. So for example, we live a block and a half off of uh, the Walk of Fame where all the stars are. And I can actually see stars I've never noticed before because I'm always too busy like watching out for people, avoiding crowds and just like kind of wandering through the thick. So I guess that that's, as I talk that through, it's like, that's what's surprising is the ability to just kind of go for walks um, in the early days of the shutdown and just really see more and see things I hadn't had the capacity to see. Um, That's definitely changing now. People are coming back to the boulevard um, and I go out and not exactly, you know, trusting everyone else with their social distancing skills. So we end up going to some off the beaten path neighborhoods and finding some great street art down some really cool alleys. And we'll get into that later. I think that's one thing that sets me apart from other self-defense instructor instructors. I'm like, let's go down that alley. Let's see what's there. Let's check it out first, but let's, let's check it out. So we've been discovering just kind of some new neighborhoods. Um, to just kind of stay off the beaten path. That's cool. Yeah, it's funny because it's like when when a lot of the noise, you know, and I, I'm using air quotes, noise, yeah, yeah, disappears. Then you see things, hear things, notice things, and can do things that you haven't been able to before because you just didn't even know they were there. Yeah, and and I'll be honest with you, Cynthia, it's it's been kind of a privilege to be in this particular place experiencing this because it's a. It, you know, the Chinese theater is here. There's just like all these landmarks that you get to see and it's like an apocalyptic movie. And so just being able to, to have that experience has been, it, 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 it's very historic. And, and I, it's an honor to be a witness to all of this in this particular location. Yeah. Oh, that's cool. So what is the most difficult decision you've ever had to make? And what was your process for making it? Oh gosh, the most difficult decision I've ever had to make. Difficult. So the first thing that pops into my head, and we talked about this, I think a little bit in an earlier episode was I was in my mid thirties when I went back to school and it was the decision to just quit my job and go finish. And that was like a big old risk to do. And I did it. (laughs) And, um, it was, and I say that was big because it was scary and risky, but I also, it was also big because it was able to change the trajectory of the life that I was living. You know, I had a, a decent job. I was actually running a martial arts school at the time, um, ran that school for about uh, seven or so years and absolutely loved it. It was a rewarding, one of the most rewarding jobs ever, 
but by going back to school, I was able to kind of open up some new doors for myself professionally. Um, so that, that's what would make it the biggest. And then in terms of how I made that process was I had the money to do it that I had been saving up and I was kind of agonizing. Should I jump? Should I do it? Should I buy a house? Should I like, what should I do? And a friend of mine, um, who's this very wise, dear friend said, Beverly, you're looking at that money as if you're never going to make any more, like you're holding on to it. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, you're right. Like, I'm, it, it's not like, <laughs> like I can spend that money. It's okay. And I can spend, and it's an investment in myself, right? It wasn't just like a wild trip to Cancun. <laughs> it was an investment myself, but it was really her just underlying, like, you'll make more money. It's, it's, you don't, you, you'll have that capacity. Um, even more so after you finish school. So those were, there's a number of things, but that's just like the, what really did put me over the edge was my wise friend, Stacy's advice. Yeah, that's really cool because sometimes it's, it's like those beliefs that we have that we don't realize that we have that are limiting us. And yeah, somebody else who just says, Hey, by the way. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, That's, that's really well said. I don't think I had the thought I'll never make money again, but just her saying that it was like, Oh, I guess maybe I do. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, actually I think that's pretty common. You know, it's, it's, it's pretty common to think I have what I have and, and this is it. Yeah. You know, as opposed to, well, I'm always generating. Yeah. Yeah. That's pretty cool. Well, one more question, then we're going to dive right into the whole urban world. Yeah. I asked you the first time that we did an interview what your advice to young women in their 20s would be. And so I want to ask that a little differently today and ask you what your advice to young women in their 20s or even late teens would be right now, given that with what's going on today, a lot of the things that young people have come to sort of expect as being normal and being the path to follow have gotten completely upended. So what would your advice be to them right now? Are, are you saying like, I, I'm, I'm not quite following you because, because their life is upended. What? Well, when you're in your late teens and your early twenties, you're just at the beginning, you're trying to figure out what you're going to do with your life and where you ah. go. And are you going to go to yeah. what's your career going to be like? And all of those sorts of things. And that you come with a lot of expectations about, I'm going to do this, this, and this, and this is my path. And got it. Yeah really gone by the wayside right now. So I'm sure that many in that age range right now are feeling totally lost. Okay. Got it. Thank you. It took me, it took me a minute to catch up there. Yeah. You know, I guess, uh, you know, they're both cliches, uh, but the first one is, you know, this too shall pass. You know, this may take a while, this may take longer than we want, but it will pass. We don't know what the outcome will be, but you know, everything that we're experiencing right now is temporary. And if you just kind of sit back and do nothing but eat Cheetos, um, you know, at the end of all this, that's the result you're going to have. So, you know, kind of keep going the best you can. I know this is affecting different people in different ways. You know, I'm very lucky and very privileged. I'm continuing to work and I, you know, haven't lost my job. I can still eat that kind of thing. I, and I know other people, you know, can't, can't say that they're that lucky. So, you know, it, either way, it's just like this will pass. Keep going towards whatever it is you want. And, you know, at the same time, it's like, I think all of us started out in life with a plan and took like, what is that saying? Make God laugh, tell him your plans or her your plans. (laughs) You know, it's just, it's great to have a plan, but that doesn't mean 
like the universe is going to line up for you in that way. Yeah. Yeah. That's very wise. And it's true. I, I think that understanding that good times and bad times are both temporary is something that's really helpful when you're young because you tend to think like, well, this is the way it is right now. It's going to be like this forever. And uh, yeah, that's it. Well, I'm, I'm 49. I have to keep telling myself that too. (laughs) I do. I, I, you know, I'm giving this, this advice and it's not to say that I don't have those down days where I just really miss, you know, the things that um, I, I want to do and, and just, again, just the vibrancy of the city. I live here for a reason. Um, and it's like a lot of those things are just not available to me right now. And, you know, if I wanted to sit home, I could do that in the suburbs, but that's not the life I want. Um, yeah. so yeah, it's, yeah, it's, uh, yeah, we all have those days. <laughs> We're all in this together in that regard for sure. Yeah. And I mean, one of the hardest things is just not knowing when the end is. That's definitely true. That's yeah. Really well said. Well, let's dive into the world of safety and self-defense in the urban environment. And uh, when we were talking before we started recording, you mentioned wanting to set some context. So how about let's start there? Yeah, sure. So just kind of what I do, it's kind of in this, it's specifically related to self-defense. It's a very specific niche. And it occupies this kind of weird space, right? Like, as as I think we all know, and, and more and more, uh, mainstream self-defense is becoming aware that the, the largest threats that women face are from people they know. It's not necessarily, or it's not that boogeyman jumping out from behind the corner and strangers and all that kind of stuff. It is primarily people we know. So if we can you know, address some of the issues there related to domestic violence and access to services and education and good jobs for women, that's, that's all part and parcel of that. So with that with that understanding, I'm, I'm very conscious when I talk about what I do in asphalt anthropology because, you know, I don't want to contribute to, there is this, this conversation of like fear of cities and fear of, you know, strangers and fear of the other. And so I really want to be mindful that I'm not contributing to that, but rather giving people the tools and the ability to embody certain skills so that they don't have to have that fear. The way I look at the city environment is that you know there's so much opportunity that lives and exists here and that's not to say it's for everybody um but for those who want to either visit or live in that environment you know if they're driven by this fear that our culture continuously you know kind of drives into our head it really you know diminishes our opportunities it diminishes you know you know do i even go to the city do i even take that job do i take public transportation do i go to that event And so my whole goal of creating asphalt anthropology is to help folks see and understand the predictability of violence and the predictability of things that can happen that you said that you're not powerless. It's not that you're a woman and you should be afraid of the city and you should be afraid of this. It's, but it's, you know, let's look at the predictable patterns and what, what I do and what I teach is is probably not for everybody, right? Like if you, uh, don't want to kind of have that ex- those experiences that I that I have or that I share that you know the, the, my clients have. That's totally okay. But what I'm about is just it's it's less about being as safe as possible and more about taking as many risks as possible with a lot of like wisdom and education and and then just downright skills on how to manage it because things do pop up. 
So I, I hope I articulated that okay, because again, it's like this weird space of, you know, a lot of the statistics of, of violence against women, again, happen in private places. Um, but, you know, we do need to acknowledge that stuff does happen on the streets. And, you know, I will say in my relationship, I have probably a 0% chance of getting, of Brian harming me intentionally. Um, you know, he may hit me with the ladder as he turns around, that kind of thing, like a Three Stooges moment. But, um, you know, I have a much greater, greater chance than zero when I go out in the community where I live of something happening. And, and it's, it's frankly, the experiences I've had, as you know, are enough to fill a book. <laughs> and so what I, what I teach and what I share with folks are the skills that you're not necessarily going to learn in a rock'em sock'em self-defense or Krav Maga class, because I do not want to like go hands-on and go rolling around on the ground with any of these folks. Um, and so it's, it's a whole other set of skills um, for navigating the public space. And so that's, that's what uh, the context that I wanted to just kind of share with folks before we jumped in. Oh, that's, that's awesome. And it's a really cool sort of reframe of not just how you think about cities, but also how you see self-defense. Yeah. Yeah. That's really cool. Well, this is why I love talking with you because, (laughs) you know, I hadn't even thought until you were talking about it that I actually carry some anxiety and fear about going into big cities. And it's really because, I mean, I've lived in a couple of them for short periods of time, but it's not a normal natural environment for me. You know, I'm more of a country girl and it's, I spent a lot of time in suburbia. That's different. Yeah. And so I guess my unconscious beliefs about cities are pretty negative and I hadn't really thought about that. And, and it's, cool to hear your reframe of that and the emphasis on, you know, we're, we're talking about not focusing on having to be perfectly safe all the time, but in making choices and allowing yourself to take intelligent, informed risks and being able to trust your skills and your tools, if something comes up. Yeah. And I'll tell you, when I teach asphalt anthropology, you know, and I teach principles and I teach, you know, kind of how to predict violence and that kind of thing. And I, but I never give you an outcome and it's like in the class and it's like, we'll go through scenarios and people will either come up with out, um, uh, solutions to the, to the existing problems that I hadn't thought of, or they'll share from their own lives. And, and I really want to move the, voice of authority from like a few people up top telling you how things are to people on the street who are successfully navigating every day. And, you know, I hear all the time, and I know we've had this conversation. Um, I was teaching a class and a woman was telling me about her and her 12 year old daughter who were in the, the lobby area of their apartment checking mail. And this guy came in and he was kind of creepy. And the daughter said to the mom, Oh, Hey, dad's waiting for us. And the mom, the dad had been long out of the picture for, so the, so for the daughter to say that was just like weird, like didn't make sense. But between the mother daughter that, that whatever secret language a parent, a parent child has, it got the mother's attention. She saw the guy and they got out. Now, mom and daughter never like planned that as a code and it's okay. You can, you can plan things and you should definitely talk about these things with your kids. But I love that story because that 12-year-old daughter, that 12-year-old child had like the, the resources and the instincts to act in the moment. 
And, you know, I really want to kind of, uh, this is kind of a, a drum I beat a lot is it's really time we listen to those voices. Let's listen to that 12 year old. Um, so often we focus on people who are victimized and, you know, there's certainly, you know, they need our care and they need our, our support, but let's also look at the people who were able to, to come up with solutions like that, because I never would have thought of that. Like if you asked me what to do, I could have come up with some solutions that might've worked, but who cares what I would have come up with? I wasn't there. So yeah. Right. But there's, yeah, there's, there's my rant about that. <laughs> And I mean, that's one of the things I, I know as a coach, sometimes I sort of apologize for saying, you know, I'm not going to be prescriptive and tell you this than that, because I have no way of predicting what might happen. And my job is just to be, and coach Tony Blower calls it an options facilitator. It's like, oh, I like that. Yeah. Ideas. But it's really, you're the one who's creative. You're the one who's got the brain that you have, the experience that you have, the mind that you have, uh, the creativity. And like, you're the one who in the moment is going to be able to come up with a response far better than any coach could ever tell you, well, in this situation, you should blah. Right. And that's and a great example because I wouldn't have thought of that either, you know? Right. And, and, and we, and we can't be there because there's so many calculations to consider. Like, what if there was more than one man? What if there was a, like, you know, and students, you know, this, like they get into the what if game with us and they want us to prescribe. And it's really, I, I, I know I've, I've disappointed some folks, but hopefully have delighted more than I've disappointed in that. Like, here's some principles, but you've really got to work through that. It's, it's, a, it's about being adaptable. And some of the, the exercises we'll get into, frankly, are from my theater background and from improv. And, you know, if you can hone those skills, you can have one more confidence to navigate and move your, move your way through the city. Um, because again, you don't know, you know, who's going to come into that lobby uh, that you're, you know, when you're checking your mail, it could be nobody or yeah, it, it, it so it's, it definitely comes back to the, per, the person. And I'm sorry for the people that that disappoints, but you know, Unless you can hire a bodyguard, there's no sure answer. <laughs> no, I mean, even your bodyguard might not do the right thing. So yeah, that's what true. about this is that this is true empowerment. This is, you have within yourself what you need. You just need to tap into it and use it and trust yourself. Yeah. You know, instead of outside of yourself to a bodyguard or a coach to tell you, you know, if this, then that, you know, trust yourself, like do educate yourself, learn how to tap into things give yourself permission to act, but it's already in you. That's real empowerment there. Right. And, and so this comes from neuroscience. Let's, let's shift gears for a second. Um, Dr. Stan Tatkin is a, is a very well-known psychologist um, who couples who span, focuses in couples and family relationships. And his premise, you think, oh, he's a lovey-dovey guy. His premise is that our brains are wired for war. We're wired for survival. We are wired to to see threats and respond to threats. That's where we get into trouble with our relationships and with our families is because we're, we have that kind of negative bias um, just because of survival. And so when you apply that to the self-defense industry, I feel like, you know, people are already are, are always like, look out for this and look out for that. And it's like, you know what, we're already doing that. We need some other skills. We need, you know, maybe to shift up how we're socialized. We need to shift up 
uh, how we, you know, what those skills are. Um, but we're, we're already wired for it. You know, not to say that I haven't, you know, made mistakes or, or missed things, absolutely. But as human beings, we need to trust that we are wired to see threats. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's, let's start with talking about avoidance then, because most women would rather avoid a bad situation than have to take action to get themselves to safety after they get into a bad situation. Yeah. So, like in an urban environment, what are some of the things that you should be paying attention to? And what are some of the signs that you might be putting yourself into a potentially dangerous situation? Yeah, sure. So one of the common things to consider, I'm going to use where I live as an example. Um, It's kind of an extreme example. And that's why I use it because I think you can kind of scale it back for less dense, less crazy places. Um, But again, living, living off a block and a half off of Hollywood Boulevard, it's like filled with tourists. It's filled with street hustlers. It's filled with locals. It's just like got everything going on 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 a normal day. (laughs) This this is not normal right now. But one thing to consider in identifying a threat is what is normal. And this is kind of a fancy word, but situational proxemics, meaning for that situation, what is proxemics, you know, having to do with like relationship of space. So if I'm on a crazy crowded boulevard, is it normal for someone to be walking right next to me? Yes is if it's empty and there's very few people is if someone's walking straight towards me, especially if they're crossing the street, but let's just say they're on the same side of the street. If they're coming towards me or close to me and it's a, it's a very open space, that's not normal. Right? So you can definitely see that happening on like crazy Hollywood Boulevard. You can see that happening on the train. If you're sitting on a train car and there's no one around and they sit next to you, like that's just not normal. Um, and of course you can apply this to, you know, smaller environments as well. So one, you want to consider what's normal for that context. Now, if someone is closing in on you, you're looking again, is that normal? And and there's in my class I teach and I show video of two young women walking down the street and a guy is on the sidewalk walking towards them. And when he sees them, he makes a hard angle and walks right towards them. Now, the, the older woman was paying attention and when he swung at her just out of, you know, uh, seemingly random violence, she saw it coming and she ducked like a champ. It was certainly shocking to have that experience, but she was successfully able to avoid that getting punched because one, she saw this guy coming right at her and she had this like large bubble of, of uh, her vision. So if someone's coming at you and you know, those are the reasons that we need to like not have our phone in our face, that we need to be paying attention. Um, We need to expand what I call our bubble. And that might be, you know, different lengths at different places, right? Like when I'm waiting to cross the street, I'm looking across the street to see who's over there. Um, There's a very good chance in the community where I live that there might be someone having a bad mental health day and that I probably don't want to cross and get right into their space. So I'm looking across the street as I wait on that corner. If you're on an empty street, you kind of can have a smaller bubble. You don't need to be looking so far. So one thing really, it's about that distance management on your part because a threat is going to be managing. Don't let them manage the distance for you. Um, I always say this 
whether it's a, a, a soft skills class or hard skills class, distance is your best friend. So unless they have a gun, they can't do anything to you, however many feet back. So as, as long as you can manage the distance and not let them manipulate the distance, you're, you're going to be a, a step ahead of the game. That's cool. And distance is an interesting topic right now because, of course, uh, yeah, you know, what is normal for distance now is completely different than what it used to be. But still, I think the same principles still apply. Well, and I think that's funny you brought it up. I didn't even think of that, but you're right. It's like I go out and in a way, a lot of my life hasn't changed. So when I go out and about, I always have maintained that bubble. Like I'll be on a crowded street, but if it's overly crowded, I walk on the edge. I was walking down the street the other day and again on Hollywood Boulevard, it's an extreme example, but it's a great laboratory for me to learn. It's very typical. You see a family walking down the street and there's like six folks and the kids and they're they're walking with their heads down because they're looking at the stars on the boulevard. And it's just like, you know what? I'm going to walk in the street just for a second, just to get around them. One, because they're slow, like COVID or not. I'm just like, I got places to be. And so like, that's me managing my distance. Right. And so in a COVID situation, that stuff's just kind of like easy peasy for me. It's like, I, 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 I'm really good at being in a city and avoiding people (laughs) at the same time. But I think that's something that I've definitely have seen people struggle with because long before COVID, people I, uh, that I would observe aren't good at managing distance. And so like for them to manage it now and not be successful, I'm not surprised at all. Yeah, I think one other thing that is coming up to mind is it's, it's fairly easy to manage distance in sort of a straight environment, you know, like a sidewalk or a street or a corridor or something like that. A little different when you're doing something like going around a corner. So how do you, how do you manage distance when you go around a corner? Cause I mean, everybody's kind of had that experience of coming around a corner and, and being face to face with somebody else and like, Oh, Hey, <laughs> you know, but that could actually be a really bad thing in some situations. So do you have any strategies for navigating around corners? I, I do. So, and I'm going to raise my hand who here has ever been a waitress in a busy restaurant and had to carry a tray full of glass, like of, of drinks. Yes. And, and you get extra points if they're martinis <laughs> in, in those crazy little glasses. So what we learn, I learned as a waitress is you don't, t- is what, what, what cops call pieing corners. You don't take that corner tight. You give yourself visibility coming around the corner so that you are both seen and that you can see around the corner. So if you, are coming around a corner and you can't see, uh, and this is, this is a game to play. And, and Brian and I, I've, I've made some videos about this uh, down in the subway and it's kind of fun. It's like, you, what is your field of vision? And if you can't see, you know, what's around that corner, you're taking it too tight. And this is true for street corners. It's true for columns, like in, a, in the a platform on the train. Um, it's true for those, um, like when you're walking down the street and you know how some doors are recessed and someone can be hanging out in there. It, that's true for all of us. You, you don't hug those corners. You, don't, you, you just don't. And I, I, as I say this, and I've shared this with people, and people think, oh, this, you know, all these things I have to remember. You, you practice it, and it becomes habit. I didn't even know how to articulate this until I was talking to a cop, and he used the word pie and corner. And I was like, 
oh, well, like I thought everybody did that. And, and it's like, no, it's, it's, it's a distinction. And so it's like, once you get it so in your body, you forget about it. And so you don't have to think, oh, I have to pie every corner. Just like practice it for a week and, and it'll be in your body. Yeah, that's a really cool technique. And it's something like I think about when I was younger and would travel, there was a lot of, I guess, a desire in me. And I also saw it in other young women to sort of hug the buildings you know, it was like it felt safer to be right next to the buildings than it did to be out in the flow of the people. Oh, interesting. But that sort of falls apart if you're then going around a corner or you go past one of those recessed doorways or something because you are more vulnerable right then. And and also like wearing my my mature woman hat versus my very young, naive, you know, early 20s self. I think the belief that I had that it was safer to have like a wall or a building next to me, you know, at least that was one side where nobody had access to me. Mm -hmm. It probably made sense at the time, but it's not necessarily true in all cases. And I think that's key, right? In all cases, like there's pros and cons to being against the wall. There's pros and cons to being on the curb, which is my generally preferred place to be. And there's pros and cons literally to being right in the middle. I, I was um, walking down the street and there was a guy who was eyeing me and started coming right at me. I just like walked right into a crowd of people and he couldn't access me. And I kind of just, it was like a school of fish. And in the next block, I turned to where I was going and it was fine. So I think, again, what we kind of talked about earlier, it's like, let's get away from these hard and fast rules. If I gave you a list of the best places to walk or the best places to sit or the best places to whatever, I'd be lying to you. It really it comes back to what we were saying earlier. It's, it's all about what makes sense in that moment. So in that moment, it made sense for me to be in that, in the middle of that crowd with that guy, um, you know, who was, who was eyeing me and coming right at me. And, and, and in any other time, I'm like, I don't want to be around the crowd. So it, it really just is, depends on the context. Yes. As, as I always apologize for saying repeatedly, it all depends on the scenario. Yeah. <laughs> well, one thing, I realized uh, about walking right next to the buildings is that you, you know, you were talking about being able to see around the corners. Well, often you're told to look at or use the windows as kind of a reflective surface to see other things that are going on around you. Uh-huh. If you smack up against the front of the building, you can't really do that very easily. Yeah. What are your thoughts on using reflective surfaces and, and how to see things without looking like you're looking at them. Absolutely. That, that is actually one of my, what I call street dodges. Um, is, it's on my list to use your reflection. Um, they're particularly great, you know, and you're just walking down the street just to kind of glance and like you feel somebody in your back just to kind of glance. Um, if I feel like more threatened than I need to just glance at a reflection, I'll just stop and let that person pass. And then I, I have their back, but particularly I think reflections I use a lot, like on the train where I'm sitting on one side or standing on one side and I hear like an outburst or something happening on the other part of the train. I don't turn and look, um, you kind of keep that kind of blase urban <laughs> attitude, but I use reflections of the physical environment, but I also use people as mirrors. What are they doing? How are they reacting? Um, it's not a perfect match because everyone's going to have their different way of reacting. They may be blase themselves. They may overreact, but you can also use a crowd 
as a mirror to kind of gauge what's happening behind you. You know, of course, turning and looking is just going to be the best thing, but, but absolutely, you know, sometimes you need to kind of play it a little bit cooler than that. And so those are great options. Are there other ways of sort of doing a quick check and not looking like you're doing a quick check? Um, yeah. So one of the things I do pretty frequently as needed is walking down the street. Let's say um, I stop at a corner and I'm waiting for the light. And th- and this is just a game that I play that becomes habit. So now it's like, it's, it's just so ingrained in me. Um, if someone comes up and stands next to me or behind me is I circle behind them, but I look like I'm looking at the building or I look like I'm looking at something else. And then I just make a game of it as I'm taking your back and you know, you do it in such a way you're not like really taking their back and you're not getting close and you're not menacing them. That would, that would be weird. (laughs) That would go a whole other direction. But yeah, it's, it's that, that fits that category of what you're asking about of checking for things, but like you don't want to necessarily look like you're checking for things. So um, I love the use of kind of these tactical circles or even ovals is, is even better because it's, it's less, less obvious. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's cool. That's, that's an interesting thing. And it's something that looks very natural to do. So it's not suspicious. Right. Right. Cool. Well, what are some of the things that you should look for when you're people watching in an urban environment, like things about like movement or behavior that could be clues that you might want to avoid them or at least not ignore them? So I kind of want to answer that in a different way is start by playing games and to understand how people move through space and how they um, interact and, and, and what's normal. And kind of once you get a feel for that, those things will, will bubble up for you. So one game that I, I, I started playing and I, and I teach this to other people, um, it's called Spot the Bad Guy. And so if you're, this works really great if you're like sitting on a train or sitting at a Starbucks, it's a little harder to play. Like if you're walking around, cause there's so much movement, but what you're doing is you're looking for someone who is behaving in a way that somehow makes them like a little suspect. Um, and that could look like anything that could look like they are, you know, high or on drugs, or it could look like they are, you know, being abusive to someone else. Um, it could look like they are, you know, staring at someone hard and like, like uh, targeting them for something or they're moving towards someone in a certain way. Um, an example of this is I was on a train, it's been a little while since I've been on the train, um, but there was two young men who were a gay couple and they were kind of canoodling and kind of in their own cute little bubble. And there was a man who was staring hard at them and he looked angry. Like he was just like not happy that these young men were canoodling on the train. And so, you know, that's what I mean by how are people just looking at people's behavior. And so when I, when I'm playing spot, the bad guy, like that guy stood out as, as someone who was really like kind of amped up by, by someone else's behavior. Um, The flip side of that though, is once, when you start playing spot, the bad guy enough, you realize most people don't give a shit about you. Most people are going on about their day and just like have their own life to live. A lot of the things that we're told to look out for, like depending especially where you are, you're going to have to look like for a lot to actually see that happen. 
you know, in some places more than others for sure. Um, but if you're, if you're out in, you know, St. Olaf, Minnesota, that's, that's a made up town. I've been watching the golden girls. Um, but if you're hanging out there and you're, and you're looking for these bad guys, you're going to be stressing yourself out and you're going to be like creating like undue, like negativity bias. Like the more we think about these bad things, we actually, the worse we get at spotting them. And so that's why I'm really hesitant to say like, look for the, you know, this thing, but instead just like sit back and just look in general and just take in your environment. I hope that makes sense. Yeah, it does. That's really interesting. And it's bringing a couple things to mind for me. One is uh, a friend of mine who's a cop would go out with his kids and they would play a very similar game. And it was really just like spot the sketchy person. Yeah. And try to explain why you read them as being sketchy. Like what was it about them that triggered this kind of a feeling about them? And that's, that's a really important game. And I think it's especially important with kids. And I also think we need to add another element to that though, is we need to understand what our own biases are. Like what makes that person sketchy? And another great book I'll recommend to you uh, and to your readers is called Visual Intelligence. And love this book. It's all about, um, written by a woman who is a lawyer and she's also an art historian. And she developed a course called Visual Intelligence where it's all about looking at artwork. It's not looking at like moving picture or like real life because as she says, in pictures, you can go back and know what the history is and, and find out things. In real life, you'll never actually know if those people were, you know, married or just dating or whatever. Like, you can make it up, but you can never really test it. So it has limited value. But with Amy Herman's book, uh, um, Visual Intelligence, she talks about, okay, you're going to study a picture, but now you've got to be able to articulate that picture, right? Like what your friend, uh, who's the officer you know, you've got to be able to articulate it, but you also notice like you've got to be able to articulate it to someone in a way that it's not my bias. And one way to kind of spot that is to look at a picture or look at a real life environment and think, okay, let's look at this picture. If I were a interior designer, how would I describe this picture to you? If I were a potential buyer of this room, how would I describe this to you? If I was a detective solving a murder, how I did describe this to you. So it really, when you kind of take that on, it really shows you kind of like, oh, if I'm a cop looking for clues, I'm going to see it differently than I am looking at it as an interior designer. And so it, it really kind of reveals our own priorities and our own biases, which I think are really important. That is cool. Wow. Yeah, it's a really fun game. <laughs> how you could just spend hours and hours and hours doing that. Yeah. Yeah. So another game, again, this from uh, the visual intelligence, Amy Herman, all credit goes to her is the articulation piece. And I played this with Brian. I've played this with my family over zoom is you take a picture and you describe it to the other person. They don't see it. It's just their, your description and they have to draw it. And we're, first of all, I'm a terrible artist. <laughs> Second of all, it really shows you how much room, even if you practice this stuff, how much room for improvement there is. So like a quick example, my dad, I was playing with my dad over Zoom and he described, it was like just a cartoon bus. And the way he described it, it like what I drew looked nothing like a bus. And, and, if, you, and if he were to say to me, draw a bus, well, I would draw the picture of a bus that's in my head. 
right. as opposed to the instruction being it's a rectangle that is laying long ways on one side and it has four squares going across the upper third and then at the bottom there are two round circles um, and the circle and you just kind of get into it like that and so it's those are kind of some games that I think are fun. Like you can play in lockdown. Um, you can play for a lot of laughs because again, they're just really terrible. <laughs> um, but it's, it's again, it's, it's, I it really, you know, I've seen this big trend in, in self-defense of situational awareness and, and self-defense. And it comes from a very kind of, I think law enforcement and um, military point of view. And there's, tremendous value to be learned from that. But I think for everyday life, that's just like not how I want to live my life. When I walk to my yoga class, I, and I walk by some pretty dicey people, I still don't need to know like how to arrest them. I just need to know, do I need to cross the street today? Is it somebody off their meds today? And those are the kind of, I, I, I feel like Amy Herman's approach or something like that is, is way more applicable to my life. And those are the things that I share with my students. Mm -hmm. That's really cool. The the other thing that came up when you were describing uh, initially the game was it's sort of uh, your your game of like spotting the bad guy. Uh, was it sort of the flip side of putting on the predatory mindset and spotting good victims? Yes. Oh, that's a really good one too. Yep. Yeah, that's a fun one too because it makes you think about you know why do I think that person would be a good victim? What is it about? how they look and how they move and what they're doing that would be enticing if I were a predator. And that's, that's a great game as well, because it makes, when I've done that, it makes me change my own behavior, right? It's like someone could tell me, don't do this thing or, you know, close your bag or whatever, you know, those kinds of things. But for me, like we learn through better through this other kind of experience. And so it's like, oh, I'm going to make sure that my bag is closed <laughs> as I, as I, you know, go up the escalator from the train, make sure that that sucker zippered because I saw it the other day and how easy it was, you know, for me to, if I wouldn't just slip my hand in there. So I think it's, 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 it's not just from judging other people, but it actually helps us learn better. Well, that's funny that you use that as an example, because one of my questions was that women usually do carry purses or some kind of backpack or fanny pack. Mm -hmm. So what is the safest way to carry your stuff, especially things like your ID and your money, if you're going to be in an urban area or especially if you're going to be in like a high tourist zone? That's a great question. And I will say, and maybe you and I can go into business on this together. I know our, our mutual friend, Deb Chris is a designer. I have yet to see the perfectly designed bag <laughs> for, for uh, travel and for navigating the city. Every, maybe I'm just too picky, but I, I think everything that even I have, there's like something wrong. But, you know, I, I think it depends, to go back and answer your question, I think it depends on what's going on. Like for me, navigating the city and I'm just going to the gym is a whole other uh, scenario than I just got off the plane and now I'm like schlepping my things on the train to go to my hotel. So I, I could answer that a lot of ways. Could you be maybe more specific? Thinking like an ordinary, ordinary day. Okay. About, you know, or being a tourist, being a visitor. Okay. Got it. Well, first, the one thing that I see a lot, um, on Hollywood Boulevard is, uh, and everywhere really is those, um, I guess, I don't know if you call it a wallet or, yeah, I guess it is a wallet, a wallet that has your phone and then all of your ID and your credit cards because people are out 
doing stuff with their phone, looking for directions or texting someone, um, and all of their stuff is right there. So it's like that, that's like a one-stop shop for me. It makes it really easy if I just want to grab that. So I really think that those types of wallets are terrible and get rid of them. <laughs> I know I don't like blanket statements, but I will go on record as saying those are terrible. <laughs> I like to have, when I travel, uh, it depends on what, what's going on in my day-to-day. -day. Um, you know, if I am not carrying my whole wallet, but I need to carry cash, you know, just kind of have it in a secure place. Um, I might go have 10 bucks in one pocket, 20 in another, depending on what I need. So if I'm in a dicey area and I need cash and if I get um, into trouble, you know, I could have something stashed, uh, that kind of thing. Uh, I, I, I guess I'm, I'm guessing I'm getting kind of lost again because it, it, my everyday and everybody's everyday is different. Is that helping? <laughs> I'm just kind of, uh, but, you know, that it's, it's really the classic issue of you can either have convenience or you can have safety, but it's really hard to conveniently carry your stuff so you can get at it easily. Yeah. And also not make it easily available to somebody who shouldn't have access to it. Yeah. So, so my favorite, let, okay, that, that helped me because I, 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 when I started to answer, I just kind of went off on a wide tangent. Personally, for me, what works for me is uh, keep in mind this is not me dressing to go to work this is like my gym clothes at, or just like kind of casual clothes but i have a light jacket that has a pocket on the inside that i slip my phone into so it's not on an outside pocket it's on an inside pocket um and then i have like my back sack that um you know has things that i might need to get to a bottle of water my wallet that kind of thing it has an external zipper and i keep that zipper zipper so that it's turned towards my back. And so if I forget to close it or if somebody's super sneaky and they're able to open it, like it's just towards my back. So they just can't really get to it. So those are kind of my everyday girl about town running errands. That's, that's how I, I set that up. And how do you keep things closed? Cause like, I think every, every person, every backpack I have has a zipper and most of the time I leave things open because I want to be able to get into them. Yeah. But how do you make sure things stay closed once you close them? Like I get with the backpack, if you turn it around so that actually the zipper is against you. Yeah. Feel somebody trying to trying to get in there. But but what about other other things? How do you keep them closed? So so I'm at a bit of a disadvantage here because I I my bias is to travel real light and I carry what I call a back sack. So it's like a drawstring at the top and it's just very lightweight. And so, I, so I've so i got it really easy. Plus I don't have like kids and stuff like that. So if you've got kids, that, that's going to add another level of complexity. Um, so, so I've got it really easy in that regard. But here's what I learned from my husband, Brian, who is a photographer. He's a street photographer and he goes all over the city and he carries equipment and he's got all kinds of stuff uh, and he carries a backpack constantly. And what he does is, um, and this I think will help with the question you're asking and, and can maybe help folks who have to like care for kids and stuff like that, is he's very strategic about where he puts stuff, right? So there's like that one pocket that he's in and out of all the time. The other pockets are like, I, I'm not going to be in and out of that so much kind of thing. Um, and then he, depending on, um, he's had different backpacks that have different kinds of pulls on them. Um, he'll either put a safety pin or he, you can, if you really want to be secure, put a lock on it. 
And so um, the lock is, again, that's going to be one of those things where you, you're not going to be in and out of it that much, but a safety pin, just that extra layer of like, it's on there reminding you. So like when you go to close it back up, like, Oh, it, it's reminding me to, to safety pin it. So it, it, it's that extra layer that someone has to get through if they want to get into it. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I'm thinking like you can get really tiny little carabiners now too, that might also. Be- yes. Yep. And he does those as well. Actually, I meant to say carabiners. I, it's not a safety pin. I don't know why I said that. It's, it's the carabiners. Yeah. Well, I like the safety pin too, though, because that actually gives you a tiny little weapon just in case you need one. Very pointy. Yeah. And if, and if something breaks, it's always good to have a safety pin. <laughs> I think my mom always used to have that safety pin in her purse. Smart. Yeah. She Smart. Some funny habits, but they were pretty cool. <laughs> pretty yeah. Yeah. Cool. Well, you know, and that's, that's, what's really interesting. I mean, again, kind of my approach is, you know, kind of footloose and fancy free around town. I like to travel light and I understand that not everybody can have that. So I've been learning a lot from Brian and it's so funny. It's, you know, the old cliche of it takes a woman longer to get out the door than a man. It's that's not true in our house. He has so much stuff he carries around. It drives me nuts. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Everybody's a little bit different in, uh, you know, how much of their, how much of their life they carry around with them. Yeah. You know, and that changes over time too. I mean, for me, I, I used to travel with a purse and a, you know, diaper bag and stuff for kids and lunches and like all of that. It's like, I had emergency things with me just in case. And like today I, I came down here and I've got my bag that had my audio equipment in it, my yeah. briefcase with my laptop and stuff and my purse. And that's like the most I ever carry now. Cause usually it's just, just one bag, one little, yeah. little purse. And that is I, a, that is a lot. Yeah. But you know, but I, <laughs> I have a big wallet though. So. Yeah. But you know, that's life, right? Like sometimes we just have to carry that around. And if, and if you're not like you have that audio equipment because you're a professional and you're, and you're, you're doing your job. And, and I think one thing that, that, that I do in, in some of my hands-on classes is we do some scenario training that includes, okay, what's, you know, for folks who traveling on the train with kids or lots of bags, we like practice that, right? Like, what is your bag? Like bring your bags. And if you're going on a trip, okay, let's practice. You're sitting on the train. How do I secure that? How do I make sure it's like within my control? Um, and it's really funny because I've done that with a number of people and they're always like, oh yeah, just like keep it on me. Or they, they say what they're going to do, but when they act it, when I ask them to act it out, like they don't really do it. And so I think that's why it's important to, if you know, you're going on a trip, like just, just practice and just think, okay, just sit in your dining room chair. It's like, okay, I'm at the airport and I've got this stuff with me. Like, where am I going to put it? Like, maybe I can put one thing under my seat with my, the loop around my foot. Like, like it, it all depends on what you have, but it's definitely worth practicing. That's a great point. And, and it's funny that you mentioned like doing scenarios where you actually bring your stuff with you because, you know, I do scenario based training too. And there are a lot of times where people do scenario based training, but it's basically empty hands. Mm. And I, I guess dudes tend to be empty handed more than women probably because they've got pockets. Right. But how many women just stash keys in a wallet in pockets and that's all they carry? Like not, you know, that's a really good point. And that, that kind of underscores and not to pick on, on the wonderful men that we know in this industry, but it also kind of underscores where 
you know, they don't understand the lives that we live. So it's not going to occur to them like all these extra layers of stuff. And, and I, one thing I study and have been looking at are reports of how women travel. And I mean, just day to day travel, not like the sexy, you know, trips to Europe and stuff like that. But, you know, as a whole, you know, if a woman takes public transit, or let me start with a guy, like a guy takes it like to and from his job. Whereas a woman, she has like one kid she has to drop off at daycare, another kid she has to drop off at school, then she goes to work. And then after work, she has to stop off at the store, pick up groceries, and then go back and pick up her kids. So she has multiple stops. She has multiple bags she's juggling. She has children she's juggling of various sizes and of various attention spans and things like that. So those are all very important things that we need to walk through with folks and take into consideration. And, and that's what, again, when I, when I say metropolitan finishing school, it's like, okay, what are those details that we don't think about in moving through the city uh, space um, that, that let's just stop and think about it. And, and to, to what you and I keep saying, it's like, I don't have the answers for you. Like I, like I said, I've never had kids, um, but I can, I can be a sounding board and like set those scenarios up and kind of, you know, help you understand what the principles are, but it's, you know, you've got to make it really specific to your life. Yeah. Yeah. And then you have to, you have to run through things, you know, you have to try stuff out in scenarios and find out like, well, can I get to this if my bag is over here or really well, yep. If I have my hands full, you know, or what do I do if I'm on the sidewalk and one of my kids darts out into the street, but I've got luggage sitting on the side cause I'm waiting for a bus to the airport or something, you know I mean? You have to, you have to go through those. And even if you can't actually physically do the scenarios, you can at least imagine them and mentally visualize them. And, and that does something that's really important because it gives you mental blueprints. Right. So that's it, really cool that, that that was kind of where your mind went there was on, um, on doing some scenarios where you actually do have your stuff with you. Yeah. Cause, cause you know, empty hand, right. That's, that's nice if you got it, but most of the time it's not. Plus, sometimes we're carrying shit with us that can be a damn fine tool. You know, if if I had to swing my handbag at somebody and smack them upside the head, it would hurt. There you go. Yep. You know, I would know to do that. I have never actually done it in a training scenario. I should do that. Note, note to Dave when he listens to this, we're going to do a scenario <laughs> <laughs> where I get to whack you upside the head with my, uh, with my swinging purse. Yeah. But, you know, I mean, we don't even think about it's, it's the affordances again, right? Cause we carry stuff with us yep. and yes, they can be a handicap. They can be things that we have to manage, but they might also turn out to be tools. Yeah. Even if just as a distraction. Exactly. As you're saying that I'm, I'm there's an, an experience I had um, walking back from the farmer's market and uh, a guy was targeting me and, you know, I had limited access and things. And it's like, okay, cauliflower is about to become my weapon <laughs> or at least a distraction, you know, and it was, you know, it, it didn't come to that. But, you know, when we, when we talk about weapons and everyday carry and things like that, I mean, you have to think about what's realistic for, you know, the environment you're in, you have to think about what's realistic for all kinds of stuff. And so I, I just love what you're saying in terms of, you know, the idea of affordances, I think really needs to be, I don't know. You're, you're, you're making me realize that needs to be like higher priority and things I share with people. I, I do, I guess, share it, but I, but not necessarily in such a clear way. Well, there's so many things to think about. It's hard. Yeah. 
to to get everything all into one program but uh, it is isn't it <laughs> i'd be carrying a picture of you literally giving a guy a cauliflower ear <laughs> that would be the caption wouldn't it <laughs> So I got a couple more questions. Yeah. So if you're going to a new city, yeah, how do you find out where the safe and the unsafe or the bad areas of town are? And are there any like, specific tools or techniques that you need to know in order to navigate through that unfamiliar space well? Yeah, I guess I don't really think of it in terms of looking for the good and the bad places. I think about it in terms of what do I want to do? Now, if this is a business trip, I'm kind of limited. And I know it's it, it's hard when I've been on business trips to take in the sites. And I just try to squeeze something in. But you know, if, if this is just something purely for my own enjoyment and pleasure that I'm planning a trip for, I just think about where I want to go and what I want to do. And I'm a map nerd and junkie. And so I read a lot of maps and look at a lot of maps. Um, Google Maps uh, Road View is, or Street View rather, is fantastic. Um, keep in mind those aren't updated. You know, they, at, there's a date at the bottom, so if, if that's a year old, just know things might have changed. Um, but you know, I just, I, 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 one thing I do look up is, and this is more out of curiosity than fear. It's like, what are the top crimes for that area? So when we were planning a trip to Barcelona. Um, I went down this rabbit hole of finding out about, um, you know, how pickpocketing is such a thing in Barcelona, which then led me to why it's such a thing in Barcelona and the whole, you know, trade there that, you know, being on the Mediterranean. So I, I kind of came at it from like a different perspective, that kind of sociological interest perspective, um, which may not be for everybody. Again, it's, it's more about, I think, where do you want to go? Just start there. And then just read about that area and things will pop up. And, you know, if you can read like local papers, local stories about what's going on there, I'm real nervous. I mean, I'm sure a lot of people would say, oh, check next door, check Facebook groups. There's a lot of hysteria there and a lot of people who uh, I, I just wouldn't trust their judgment. I'll just put it that way. There's, there can be seeds of good information there, but I'm, I'm, I'm skeptical of that, of kind of, uh, those kinds of voices. But yeah, again, it just kind of starts with curiosity and just where you want to go. And if I want to go somewhere and I start reading about it and it's just like, you know, super, super, this kind of crime happens there. Keep an eye out for that. It is kind of more simple, I think, than most people want to believe, Cynthia, in that as women, we're vulnerable to certain things, and, and it, it, like there's people get close to us either by those physical things we talked about and managing distance. There's also the psychological aspects. And so those are the kind of things, if I had a daughter and she's getting ready to travel, I would equip her with those things more than don't go to such and such street. If that makes sense. I just I kind of went yeah. off on a tangent again there, but it, it's less about bad neighborhoods and good neighborhoods and more about, do you know how to manage somebody? Yes. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. What are some of the psychological things that you would suggest then? Uh, well, a good starting point, and you know, this is Gavin De Becker just broke the Bible on this, so I can't improve on what you know he said. But you know, looking at how the interview, what he calls the interview, happens, and then he has about I think seven different bullet points. I know you're familiar with them, 
but for our audience, you know, just I'll go get into a few. Um, the use of charm. If someone's trying to charm you, be suspicious, right? People aren't shouldn't be that interested in you if they just met you. The use of charm is one. Discounting boundaries. If you tell someone no and they keep going, and this could be, um, you know, a guy at a bar offering you a drink, or this could be, you know, a, a guy on the Hollywood Boulevard trying to sell you a tour. Like if someone does not hear your no, then you just need to like put as much distance between you and them as possible. Another one uh, is, let me see, I'm just kind of drawing blanks here. <laughs> I'm getting so <laughs> into this. Uh, oh, forced teaming is a really good one that, that a bad guy will use the use of the word we. Um, so, hey, what are we doing today? How are we ladies feeling? That kind of thing. If someone tries to put you on their, like use the word we a lot, it's a manipulation. So a way to counter that is, and I should, and I always want to underscore bad guys will use those techniques, but normal people use those techniques and a really low risk way of being good at spotting those techniques and managing them is the next time you're at a restaurant, notice how many times your waiter or wait person uses those interview techniques on you. They'll charm you. They'll use the force teaming. Hey, everybody, how are we doing tonight? Who, who's about, who, are we celebrating a birthday tonight? That kind of thing. They'll do another Gavin De Becker technique called loan sharking. Maybe they'll give you free trips or chips or that kind of thing. Now, none of what they're doing is terrible. And I'm not saying that they're sc scary, bad people. They're just kind of just doing their job and they want to get a good tip. So it's a low risk way. If you can start spotting those in that low risk environment, you can get really good at spotting that when the risks are higher. But if you don't spot it when the risks are low, you're going to be that deer in the headlights when the risks are high. That's cool. That That's going to be a fun game to play too. Just, uh, you know, seeing if you can spot the innocuous version yeah. of things that can be used by people with bad intentions as manipulations. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And, and I encourage your readers, if they haven't read DeBecker's, that section on the interview, go back and read it and read it in full. Um, I think there's more to it than we can get into here on this, on this conversation. But, you know, people use those things every day. So when you start spotting them in, in, the, in the low risk, no risk, even situations, you're just going to put yourself ahead of the game. So, you know, I, I mean, I see that kind of stuff happening, you know, when we travel, whether it's here in LA or, or when we travel, you know, it's like that person who wants to, that street vendor who wants to sell you something. And, you know, sometimes they're just trying to make a living, but they also could be setting you up for a scam or they could be setting you up for something. Mm -hmm. And so that's why I'm, I'm less worried about the bad neighborhood. I, I'm using my little finger quotes yeah. um, than I am about those kind of tactics and just being savvy on that. Oh, neat. Well, I'm, I'm curious before we wrap it up, are there any other little games or tips that you typically share? that you think we ought to cover today? Yeah. What, one more thing to cover for folks, whether, excuse me, whether you're traveling or, or not just in life, it's okay. I just want to give people permission here to lie and to deflect questions. And when I say lie, <laughs> you know, that's not something that we're, we're, we're told is okay. And I'm not encouraging that in everyday life and in business and to our families. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the person the Uber driver who wants to ask you a bunch of questions about your life. 
I'm talking about the person who you just met and maybe you're interested in, in, in pursuing something further, but you're just not ready to give out information. I like the, the using of deflections. So if someone is asking you a lot of questions, you can be kind of coy and cagey and then turn those questions back around on them. That way you're getting information from them before you're giving it up about yourself. And then that way you're gathering the information and you can make decisions on how this, this can go. Mm, mm-hmm. That's interesting because giving yourself permission to lie or to deflect goes hand in hand with giving yourself permission to act in a way that is not actually you. Mm-hmm. But on any behavior really that you, that isn't normally you, but that could be useful in keeping you safe in whatever situation you happen to be in. So, you know, maybe you are a super wicked, smart, incisive thinker who, you know, takes in data very rapidly and analyzes it and comes up with quick decisions. But in the scenario you're in, it is better for you to appear a little bit dopey and kind of slow and not with it. I love that. Yep. Yeah. So Absolutely. Permission to lie, to deflect, and to take, you know, to use behaviors that aren't necessarily true you if the goal is to keep yourself safe. Yep. And I, I, and I never thought of it this way before, but I have since as long as I can remember, I have a made up name. When someone asks me my name that I don't want to tell them, I just give them this fake name. And <laughs> I never thought of it of coming, becoming someone else, but I, I, I guess I do. <laughs> I think that's great. You know, I mean, that's one of the things when you give somebody your name, you're actually giving them something very valuable. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. You're also just reminding me that sometimes we give away information without even realizing that we are by, you know, the clothes that we wear, or I don't know if people use buttons or pins anymore, but certainly there is information that we have on us and that is displayed like on, on a vehicle or on a suitcase that we may not even realize we are sharing with, with people. Do you have any tips or insights into that? Yeah, don't do it. <laughs> the, the most extreme example, I remember sitting on the train and there was a family and they were from, they were head to toe in, I can't even remember the name of the town and the sports, like it was the St. Olaf Vikings or whatever it was. Like, I'm just making this up. I can't remember what it was now. And it was, they were head to toe in their high school, like gear and like, like not just to what they were wearing, but like stickers on their suitcase. Now this is like an extreme example. Um, but I, by the time they got off the train, I had already found them on Facebook. (laughs) Oh dear. So those, those, those are some of the be, be the bad guy uh, games, you know, it's like, oh, you want to give me this information? I'm going to stalk you. And I, and I found them. Uh, at first I went to the high school and found it was a sports team. So I found like the portrait, like the, not the class portrait, but the team portrait. And I was able to see their name. And then I found them on Facebook by before they got off the train. Wow. And so, you know, that's an extreme example of that family just went bananas. And there was, it was like two moms and like maybe four young women um, in high school and middle school age. And so, you know, at, to your point, I mean, you already said it, like you give away a lot of information. And so it's just as easy to wear a blank shirt as it is to wear something else. 
and that's not to say don't have team pride and don't, you know, this and that, but think about the environment you're in. If you're back home in St. Olaf and you're wearing that shirt, no big deal. But if you're on a train with a bunch of weirdos like me, <laughs> clearly I didn't do anything about it, but you know, it's just, uh, it, it just think about the context that you're going to be in. Yeah, because it gives people a hook to initiate some sort of connection with you. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's, that's cool. Well, before we wrap it up, I want to give you a chance to share how people can find you and follow you. And I also want to know when you're going to put out an online course. Ah, that is the funny question. I, I keep getting requests for that. So I have a day job that is keeping me so busy. <laughs> I'm so tired. <laughs> I am I am working with people, um, coaching folks to set up by appointment. So uh, if they have a trip coming up or if they have certain uh, problems or issues they're working with, I am working with people that way. So it's kind of by appointment only. Um, but you can get that information through my website. You can reach out to me that way. Um, I do have a monthly newsletter I send out with a monthly blog where we kind of talk about some of these things in more in depth. And I tell tales of, you know, things I've seen. Um, again, I know a lot of my experiences are extreme, but I, I tell them in a way that I hope can be valuable to people who are in no matter what environment they're in. And then I'm also active on um, Instagram. I can handle one social media platform in my life. <laughs> so it's on Instagram. And I, I post there daily um, some things there and you can message me that way. And then as you, you mentioned, I do have a book that I'm working on. Um, and so I encourage you, if you're interested in that, to get on my mailing list. And you'll be the first to hear about that when that is ready to go. Sweet. Well, we will put the links to your Instagram and your website up in the show notes. And I also just want to ask you if you can share just for a second your Asphalt Anthropology bingo cards. Yeah, those are actually on my website. So um, I've got some free downloads there. So I've got a bingo card there that you can go and download. And, and just a little context for listeners, it, it's a way of, of looking at, at your environment, studying it and taking it in, but it's in a game way, right? It's, 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 it's meant to be fun and, pur and purposefully light. Um, I, I am, if I ever someone walks out of my class more frightened than I, I really failed. So I need to um, make changes. So yeah, come check out the bingo cards on my resources page. Um, and I have some other downloads there as well. Have you thought about doing a COVID bingo card? Um, I have Brian and I, when we walk around, I'm like, I need to put that on the bingo card. I just, life has been so crazy. I just haven't had the, the, the mental capacity to sit down and do that, but you're encouraging me. Oh. <laughs> to see that. So, well, gosh, Beverly, this has been yet another absolutely fascinating journey through your mind, your world, your, your insights. And I it just, I love living in Beverly land. I really do. Oh my goodness. That, that, thank you. That's high praise. I always appreciate, and I get so much out of our conversations. You make me think of things in a new way. So thanks for having me. Oh, sweet. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show and you will be back. I know. And uh, for now, this is the Born to Be a Badass podcast. Stay safe and be a badass. You've been listening to the Born to Be a Badass podcast, the groundbreaking show that shines the light on women, violence, and safety, life after trauma, and how to build personal power and courage. 
Be sure to subscribe so that you don't miss a single episode and share it with your friends, family members, and colleagues. And while you're at it, please leave a rating and review that will help our show reach more women around the world. Tune in regularly for more exciting conversations full of insights and wisdom you won't hear anywhere else. And until next time, embrace your inner badass.